Like I said in my prayer, we're going to continue to focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ because we know that the gospel is what gives all of us hope. Amen? And hope is the title of our Easter series this year. And if you're with us two weeks ago, we started out as we lead up to Easter in Matthew chapter 27, looking specifically at verses 15 through 31. And in Matthew 27, 15 through 31, I asked you, the church, a very, very important question. And that question was, what will you do with Christ? And as we look through Matthew chapter 27, 15 through 31, we observed in that text that the Jewish chief priests, those elders, the crowd, they all rejected Christ and they were condemned but then we turn to the good news as presented before us in the word of God and we know for those who believe in Christ, they will be pardoned. Aren't you thankful for that? Wow, wow. Well, today we're gonna look at scripture together again and I want us to be able to look at the word so that we can find the answer to this question that's also significant and the question is, what did Christ do for you that's going to be our focus this morning. So I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew 27 again. We're going to pick up verses 32 through 56. What did Christ do for you? Here's the first thing you'll see in this text that Christ did for you. Jesus endured the wrath of men for you. Jesus endured the wrath of men for you, friends. And throughout history... You've read about this, maybe you've seen it on the news, it's tragic, it's unfortunate, every single account, but we have read about, we have seen news that's reported that wicked things have been done by evil men throughout history, right? And some of these wicked things have happened to helpless women and helpless children and that just angers us as it should. And I don't even want to give you examples because I don't want our minds to even go there. But let's just admit, wicked things have been done throughout history by evil men. But the moment that sinful men crucified the Son of God, mocked him, ridiculed him while he hung on the cross, that was the lowest point in all of human history. The lowest point. And so I want to draw your attention to exactly that moment. Verse 32 through 44, follow along as I read. It says, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by, look at this, derided him. 
wagging their heads saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Ha! Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down off that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. <laughs> he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from now on that cross. We'll believe in him then. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And friends, what made this moment in history so atrocious was the fact that Jesus was and still is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. This man, Jesus, emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And he didn't come to this earth to be served. I'm the king, serve me. Jesus came to this earth to serve. How? To give his life a ransom for many. And you can read through all four accounts of the gospel writers. And you can read all about the good things that Christ did when he was on this earth. Plenty of good things. He taught amazing lessons. He preached the greatest of sermons. He healed the sick. He restored sight to the blind. He made the lame to walk again. He raised the dead back to life. He fed the hungry. He cast out demons. And I could go on and on and on and on about the good things that Jesus the Son of Man, the Son of God did. Everything that he did while he lived on this earth proved to everyone that he is the Messiah. And yet, on that day, this Friday that we're reading about in the text here, these sinful men, they disregarded everything that Christ ever said. They threw out everything that he ever did and you heard it, they made fun of him. They laughed at him as he hung before them on the cross. Unquestionably, what we've read here, 32 through 44, this is the most horrendous crime that's ever been committed on this earth. And when it comes to crime, you and I know there's always a motive and there's always a search. What's the motive? What's the motive for the crime? Well, when it comes to this crime, here's the motive. People do what they do. Why? Because they want what they want. That's always the motive. And you go, okay, well, what did they want? Why did they do what they did to Jesus? Well, John lays it out. This is why. Because people love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. And sadly, the darkness of the human heart was on full display on the day that they crucified the Lord. The lowest point in human history 
the darkest of dark when it comes to the human heart happened on that day. Verse 32 starts out saying, as they went out from the praetorium, as we looked at verses 15 through 31, Jesus, the son of man, was too weak at that moment to carry his cross. He went through a sleepless night the night before, beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane and then through all those illegal trials. And you got to also understand, what did Pilate do before he sent him away? Had him scourged. The Romans just beat him to a pulp with their whips. And so he's too weak to carry his cross. And verse 32 points to us an individual, his name, Simon, a Jewish man from Cyrene. You can see this on the map. Cyrene is on the Mediterranean coast of, the nor- of North Africa. And you can see it's quite a journey. Why Cyrene, the Simon of Cyrene, why is he in Jerusalem? Well, this was the Passover feast. And this Jewish man had made his way to Jerusalem to sacrifice his Passover lamb. And isn't it amazing? He comes to Jerusalem to sacrifice his Passover lamb. And who does he have an encounter with? the Lamb of God. And he has the privilege to be able to carry the Lamb of God's cross to the execution site, the one who would take away the sin of the world. Verse 32 says, he was Simon, my name. And they compelled, they demanded this man to carry his cross and When details like this are given in the word, hone in. There's reasons why God gives us this information. There's reasons why we're told his name is Simon. We don't know the exact reasons, but we can guess. There was another important Simon in the Bible, right? Who was very, very close to the Lord, am I right? His name is Simon Peter. In chapter 26, right before chapter 27, Simon Peter said some very bold things to the Lord. You can look at them with me if you want. Matthew 26, verse 33, he's right before the Lord and he's pointing to all the other disciples. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And what does Matthew tell us? Simon Peter denied Christ three times. That Simon should have been the one helping Jesus carry the cross. But it was a different Simon. Simon of Cyrene. In verse 33, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, we also refer to this place as Calvary. Calvary comes from a Latin word, calva, which means skull. So if you hear Golgotha skull, Calvary skull, same place. It says there in verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. Gall was a bitter herb that they used. It was a sedative for pain. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And friends, that's important right there in the scriptures because it's the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy that David wrote in Psalm 22. He refused to drink it. Why? 
because he didn't want any relief from his sufferings. He knew from the moment in the garden in his prayer to the Father that he must drink in the full cup of God's wrath for our sins. And he had to drink it all fully conscious. That's why he refuses. J. Ligon Duncan gave a powerful exhortation from this verse. I'll throw it up on the screen for you to read and be impacted by it as I was. He says, you should never, ever forget that, that he refused that drink. He refused that drug, wine for you, church. Jesus deliberately said, I'll take that man's pain. I'll take that woman's pain. I'll take that man's punishment. I'll take that woman's punishment. I'll take it and I'll face it in the fullness of my feelings, in the fullness of my awareness, in the fullness of my consciousness. I'll take nothing that will take the edge off of what I experience in their place. That's why he refused it, for you. Verse 35 says, when they had crucified him. Thomas Constable pointed out that crucifixion was unspeakably painful and degrading. While nailed to the cross, the victim endured countless paroxysms as he pulled with his arms and pushed with his legs to keep his chest cavity open for breathing and then collapsed in exhaustion until the need for oxygen demanded renewed paroxysms. The scourging, the loss of blood, the shock from the pain, all produced agony that could go on for days, ending at last by suffocation or cardiac arrest or loss of blood. When there is reason to hasten death, the execution squad would smash the victim's legs. Death followed almost immediately, either from shock or from collapse that cut off breathing. The Romans normally reserved crucifixion for only the worst of criminals, the lowest class of society. But for the Jews, crucifixion was even worse for someone. And the reason I say that is because Deuteronomy 21, 23 in the law, it reads, anyone who was crucified was considered cursed by God. And normally the Romans would crucify the victims naked And they did so with Christ, fulfilling messianic prophecy again in Psalm 22, where it says they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there, making sure no one tried to rescue him. And over his head, they put a sign with the charge against him, which read, as John tells us in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, this, listen to these words, look at them in that verse, is... Jesus, not this man claims, Pilate put, this is Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And his mockers thought that they were being funny with this inscription, but little did they know that what they put on that sign, it rightly identified who he was and is. That sign, friends, above his head pointed everyone to the Lord of glory in the midst of all that gore. Jesus died on the cross because of who he truly 
is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Notice verse 38, the two robbers we mentioned, these would be the two freedom fighters, these two revolutionaries, they were crucified with him. One on the right, one on the left, and that was also a fulfillment of prophecy, this one coming from Isaiah about the Messiah, chapter 53, verse 12, numbered with the transgressors. We talk about all this, friends, because I want you to see what Jesus did for you. Jesus endured the wrath of men for you. Matthew did not focus his audience on the physical torture that Christ went through. He simply said, verse 35, they crucified him. He focused most on how Christ was scorned by men. That's where he draws our attention to. Verse 39, those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads. You read in chapter 26, those same men falsely accused Jesus of blasphemy. And as you can read here in chapter 27, they were the ones who were truly guilty of blasphemy. And that was a fulfillment, what they did of the messianic prophecy that David wrote a thousand years earlier, that they would do the, just that wag their heads. At the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, you can read in Matthew 4 where the devil tempted Jesus to prove to everyone that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. And the devil said, hey, do these things which were outside God's will to show who he was. That's what the devil did at the beginning of his earthly ministry. And here, Jesus is at the end of his earthly ministry. And what do we find? Wicked men following in the devil's footsteps and wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from that cross. Use your divine power to avoid pain and suffering. Save yourself. Show that you really are the Messiah by coming down off that cross. All of it was temptation. All of it was clearly against the will of God and his redemptive plan for humankind. Followed in the devil's steps. It says also the chief priest, verse 41, the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved, he rescued and restored others. He cannot save himself. And you and I know on this side of this moment, because we have a full scripture, that God could have saved himself on that day, right? Absolutely. He had, he's the almighty God. He could have saved himself, but aren't you thankful he didn't? They said, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. We'll believe in him. In other words, they're blaming Jesus for the reason why they're not believing. And it's amazing and something we must ultimately be thankful for, that Jesus did not come down off that cross because if he would have... Do you know what that means for us today, friends? There's no salvation. No salvation for any of us. 
Verse 43, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. These religious leaders are, are quoting this. They're quoting messianic prophecy as the Messiah hung on the cross. These men of all people, they were the ones that were close and followed him around. They witnessed with their very own eyes all the miracles that Jesus did. They heard with their very own ears all of Christ's teachings. They're using David's messianic prophecy to suggest he can't be the Messiah because God's not delivering him off that cross. Because if he delighted in God, then God would deliver him. He can't be the Messiah. Jesus endured the wrath of men for you, friend. The Roman soldiers mock Christ. The crowd mock Christ. The Jewish religious leaders mock Christ. The insurrectionists mock Christ. Verse 44, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. What's Matthew saying? He's saying, bottom line, Jesus on this Friday, he was the center of attention. While he hung on the cross, all attention was fixed on him. The suffering servant was completely forsaken and rejected. The wrath of men while he hung on that cross was poured out on him as the sinless savior. And then it tells us in verse 45, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And understand that this was not a dust storm, friends. This was not just a cloudy day in Jerusalem. This was not a solar eclipse, as some like to suggest. And how do we know that? Because you can research this. Every time the Passover is celebrated, it's celebrated when there's a full moon. So this was not a solar eclipse. What was it? It was a miraculous sign of God showing his power and his judgment. When there was darkness over the earth for three hours, all these men should have shook and trembled in fear, friends. They should have been crying out to God for mercy. But their hearts were so deceived on that day, they paid no attention to what was going on around them. They just continued to hurl insults at Jesus. John Calvin wrote about these men in his institutes. He says, their madness ought to greatly astonish us, make our hair stand on end. For they must have been more stupid than brute beasts who when plainly warned of the severity of the judgment of heaven by such a miracle did not cease to indulge in mockery. But this is the spirit of stupidity and of giddiness with which God intoxicates the reprobate after having long contended with their Malice. Can you believe it? God sends this sign of power and judgment, darkness, and they don't even care about it. They just continue to hurl insults and pour out their wrath upon the sinless Savior. And we got to be careful here, friends. 
because it's easy for us to read these verses and think, well, I'm not that bad. At least I'm not like those soldiers and I'm not like those crowd members and I'm not like those religious leaders. I'm not like those robbers. I don't do that. We tend to look at this and we tend to, like I've been doing, magnify their sins. But let's pump the brakes now and let's look within. Let's not magnify their sins and minimize our very own sins, friends. Matthew put all this here so that we would all examine our very own hearts and remember what the prophet Isaiah said about all of us. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to our own way. And because of that, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We got to focus in. Look within our hearts. The Bible's very, very clear in the Old Testament that the soul who sins shall die. And it's very, very clear in the New Testament that the wages of sin is death, which means, friends, the only way for God's wrath to be completely satisfied was precisely for what we're reading about, his sinless son to suffer and die for our sins. That's the only way. The only way, which leads us to the second thing that Jesus did for you. He endured the wrath of God for you. One pastor explained it this way, during the three hours of darkness, the unimaginable and indescribable happened. That beautiful, shining, loving face of the Father withdrew into the dark, frowning, punishing face of wrath as his son was made to be sin for us and bore our sins in his body on the tree and became accursed for us when our sins were laid upon him. And when you think about darkness, as it's mentioned here in verse 45, as you read through the Bible, darkness often in scripture represents judgment. The ninth plague against the Egyptians in Exodus chapter 10 was what? Three days of darkness. And you know what's very interesting and I think intentional? Following three days of darkness, what happened next? Passover lambs were slain to provide atonement and to be spared from death. Death of the firstborn. Here, we don't have three days of darkness, but what do we have? Three hours of darkness. And what follows after the three hours of darkness? Christ, our Passover lamb, what? Was slain for us. God sent this darkness as a miraculous sign, a judgment and wrath to come, meaning anyone who does not repent and believe in Christ will eventually face God's eternal judgment and wrath. Jesus, when he was on this earth, said, those people who do not repent and believe will be cast into outer darkness where they'll be anguish in the flames and weeping and gnashing of teeth and it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and during this time leading up to easter 
there tends to be a significant focus in all churches, especially the evangelical ones, to focus in on the physical sufferings of Christ on the cross and not so much on the spiritual agony that Christ endured. Arguably one of the main reasons why there was darkness over the earth for three hours, it was to conceal the suffering that Jesus went through at the hand of his father. That's why. Have you ever had a parent say to you as their child when they get ready to punish you, this is going to, can you finish that phrase? Hurt me more than it hurts you. Anybody want to admit, yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> See who the trouble, the naughty ones are in the, in the audience. Why do parents say that? Because it's painful for a loving parent to watch their child suffer, even if their child deserves it. That's why they say it. But take this spiritually now. What God the Father went through on that day, think about that. He poured out his wrath on his son. He put his only son who was sinless, who was innocent, who didn't deserve this. He put him through this excruciating pain that day, this intense spiritual agony that day as he poured out his wrath upon his son for our sins. And Mel Gibson and other directors can capture and give us a visual of physical pain and torture that Jesus probably went through. They can put it on a film, but there is nobody who can fully capture the spiritual agony that Christ experienced while on that cross. And the reason I say that is because of verse 46 we read about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you read that, those words of Christ as he hung on the cross, you understand what was the worst part of the cross for him being separated from his father as he bore our sins. That was the worst. Prior to that moment, he enjoyed close fellowship with his father, but on that cross, he endured the father's judgment for our sins. And verse 47 says, some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. If you remember that guy, he's in the Old Testament, one of the prophets. And what's significant about him? God took him up. He didn't die in a whirlwind, right? Up to heaven. And the Jews held this belief that Elijah would come back and he would rescue the righteous from their suffering. And so when they heard those words, oh, he's calling for Elijah, quick. Verse 48, one of them. 
at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, wine that strengthened with vinegar, and put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. So they gave him this sour wine, maybe in an effort to try to prolong his suffering, but ultimately because they wanted to see something cool. Let's see if Elijah comes back. Wow. After he took a drink, verse 50, Jesus triumphantly cried out again with a loud voice and died. He yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's significant. When that happened, that meant this is the end of the old covenant and it's now the beginning of the new covenant, amen? That means we don't have need for the temples, we don't have need for the priests, the altars, the animal sacrifices. Wow, I'm so thankful for that, are you? Why don't we have need for all those things? Because Jesus, the sinless Savior, finished the work of salvation on the cross. Today, anyone can draw near to God. How? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the ultimate, the final sacrifice. Continues on in verse 51 and 52. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened. Many bodies of the saints, possibly martyr prophets, who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That had to be something, to be present and see that. And I really like how Warren Wearsby summarized the significance of verses 51 through 53. He said, the earthquake reminds us of what happened at Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses. The earthquake at Calvary signified that the demands of the law had been met. The curse of the law forever abolished. So the torn veil indicates that Jesus conquered sin. The earthquake suggests he conquered the law, fulfilled it. And the resurrections prove that Jesus defeated death. And when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, said, truly, this was the Son of God. And there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had not forsaken the Lord like the other disciples, but followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And this was a day that these ladies would never forget. This goes down as the greatest moment of God's redeeming work in human history what we've just looked at this morning. Jesus endured the wrath of men for you. And Jesus endured the wrath of God for you. As guilty sinners, friends, we all deserve judgment. There's nothing that any of us can do to escape God's holy wrath for our sins. Nothing. We were hopeless. We were helpless and is in that condition that God did not spare his own son but gave him up for who? Us all. That's amazing, isn't it? Because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, completely satisfying the Father's wrath for your sins, 
There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning everyone who believes in Jesus, that he died on the cross for their sins, they will escape God's final day of judgment on sinful humankind. Do you know how you should respond when you hear news like that? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldest die for me? That's how we respond to that good news. 16th century theologian described the love of God towards us in Christ as astonishing, inestimable. He went on to write that all the sufferings that Christ endured are here, portrayed so that we may see more clearly how much our salvation cost him. When we reflect that we justly deserved what he endured, we might more and more be moved to repentance. God here plainly shows us how wretched our condition would have been if we had not a redeemer. So this morning, friends, I want to encourage you to thank God that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for you. Thank God for that. Because of his incomprehensible love for us, you and I today can go out of this building and say, we are people of hope. People of hope. Why? Because our greatest need, which is forgiveness for sins, has been met. We have forgiveness for our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is rich in mercy. And because of his great love for us, even when we are dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that we are saved. We have hope. God freely provides to all who believe in Jesus forgiveness. So I ask you this morning, friend, are you forgiven? And if you're not sure about that, you can, right where you're listening, confess your sins before God. Ask him for forgiveness. Call upon him to be your Lord and Savior, and he will forgive you and save you and give you the free gift, eternal life through Jesus Christ. The cross shows the Father's amazing love for you, friend. The cross shows the Father's amazing Savior for you, friend. Verse 37, 42, I want to draw your attention to who our Savior is. He is Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. He's the King of the Jews. He's the King of all kings. That's our amazing Savior. And verse 40, verse 43, verse 54 tells us he is the Son of God. And that's who Matthew wants us to believe he is. In other words, Jesus is God in human flesh. He's the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And on the cross, he was stripped of everything as we read this morning so that you and I can be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And without those clothes, you can't stand before God and he freely provided those clothes for us. Are you thankful for that? I love how Paul put it as we wrap this all up. He tells us that Jesus was rich. 
yet for our sakes he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. We're rich in Christ. He is our great Savior. So may his amazing love for us that we've seen from the scriptures, may it turn our hearts away from sin and compel us to a greater love and a greater devotion and a greater service for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All God's people say, amen. Father, thank you for giving us this hope. We're so thankful for what your son Jesus did for us enduring the wrath of men for us, enduring ultimately the wrath of God for us. May we never tire of hearing what he has done for us. This is life-changing stuff, and I pray that we would allow his great love for us to compel us to love and serve him all the days of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.